This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now, the country's number one podcast for Britain's vilifiers and talkers down. I'm Alex Andreu. If you're a fan of the podcast or you've got things to get off your chest, why not fill in our audience survey while you're listening? The link's in the show notes. You'll be helping us to make the podcast better and you could win an Oh God, What Now t-shirt too. Now, let's meet the panel. Roz Taylor is a freelance editor currently writing a new book on trust. I am reliably informed that she has secured and is examining the last remaining sample. Hi, Roz. Hello, Alex. Yes, that's trust, not trust, just to be clear. (laughs) Dame Sharon White, the boss of John Lewis, has warned that over 50s leaving the workforce is fueling inflation. Over a million over 50s apparently left their jobs during the pandemic. Do we know why that is? We have uh, some idea from uh, national statistics surveys. I mean, I find this a bit bemusing, to be honest, with the cost of a thing going up. And personally, I don't get to play, uh, claim my pension for another 20 years. And I'm uh, <laughs> three years off being 50. So this suggests that quite a lot of people feel more comfortable than I might have expected them to feel. But nonetheless, a lot of those who did leave say they are stressed or they are long-term sick. So we don't know why that is. It could have something to do with the NHS's long waiting lists. And if you suspected, as I did, that perhaps some of them own property, which they are now able to rent out and live off the income from that, that is only true of one in 20 of them. So, Oh, so that's a red herring. It's not quite a red herring because, I mean, if you think about it, if there's a couple and one owns, then, you know, they're both enjoying the income. But it's not as substantial as perhaps I would have expected. There are clearly a lot of people who are struggling. And in fact, 69% say they would like to work part time. They just can't find the right job. That's interesting. And how is that fueling inflation? Well, the reason it's fueling inflation is that as the workforce shrinks, there are fewer people available to do jobs and so wages go up. And when you get wage inflation, that feeds into general inflation. And what we're seeing now is a massive shortage of labour in this country where the combination of the cost of living going up and staff shortages is pushing up wages. Mm. I thought we wanted to be a high-wage economy, but apparently not (laughs) yet. (laughs) Too soon. Charles Arthur is a tech journalist and the author of Social Warming, How Social Media Polarises Us All. Hello, Charles. Hi, Alex. The war between Russia and Ukraine has raged, not just on the ground, but online too. Um, Recently, Google uncovered an app that purported to help attack Russian sites, but was actually designed by Russia to dupe Ukrainian users. Who's winning the information war, do you yeah, think? It's, a, it's really interesting, isn't it? So this was an app which purported to be a way for Ukrainians. They'd load it on their smartphones and they'd be able to tell the Ukrainian forces, so they thought, where Russian positions were. But actually what it was doing was telling the Russians where they, the owners of the smartphones, were, mm. which meant the Russians could target uh, more more effectively and, uh, you know, obviously make things much worse for, for them. Uh, Google did uncover 
cover this, but it sort of shows how this Russia-Ukraine war is, I guess, the first smartphone war in a in a big way, mm. um, and it's it's so reliant on what people are able to send. We're seeing so many more videos, but also, I mean, in terms of the information war, Russia's fighting an information war on two fronts. It's it's doing it at home, where it's trying to suppress people complaining about the war, and it's trying to do it in the West, seeding all stuff on Twitter and so on, where it's getting a lot of pushback. So. I think that uh, it's fighting it on so many fronts that you you can't really say that it's winning either, Mm. either side. Last time we spoke on The Bunker, I asked you whether Elon Musk buying Twitter was a done deal. What happened? Oh, yes. Well, this is this is very simple. So so uh, here we go. Elon Musk decided, said he wanted to buy Twitter because there were too many spam bots on it and he would get rid of the spam bots. Twitter didn't want Elon Musk to buy Twitter, but Elon offered them $44 billion and so they said, OK, you can buy us. But then Elon said, there are too many spam bots, so I'm not going to buy you Twitter. So Twitter is now taking Elon to court to make Elon, who doesn't want to buy Twitter, buy Twitter, which Twitter doesn't want him to do. So that e- <laughs> but Twi- Elon is complaining there are too many spam bots, which he had said was the thing that he wanted to have it for. Uh, and so he's not going to buy Twitter. So we now have a court case coming up in November, where he might be forced to buy Twitter that he doesn't want to buy, which Twitter doesn't want him to buy. But we might get some really juicy information about the percentage of spam bots was considered a spam bot, etc. So that might be quite interesting, right? If I mean, if that's a factual issue on which it hangs, his defence. It might be, but actually it all depends on how you define it. How the hell do you define a spam bot on Twitter? It's actually, know. you know, I have automated things going out of mine. Am I a spam bot? I I mean, I don't feel like one. Maybe it's one of those Blade Runner questions. You have automated things going out of yours? Yeah. It tweets. Stay behind after class. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest this week comes with a glowing recommendation from our own Mini Raman. Satbir Singh is the former chief executive of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and is now the managing director at Open Democracy. Satbir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. The Commonwealth Games have just wrapped up in Birmingham. Opening them, Brummy Joe Lysett announced that he was going to do something the British government doesn't always do and welcome some foreigners. Four years on from the Windrush scandal, are the struggles of those communities against the Home Office represented well enough? Is it all resolved? It's a really important question, and the answer in short is no. The scandal was unveiled or revealed four years ago when the public at large found out about thousands of people, mostly black Britons from former colonies, who were being targeted with immigration enforcement, detained, deported, denied various benefits like health care or the right to work. To date, we've seen quite slow progress on two fronts. And um, one is the immediate restoration of rights for people who suffered and the Home Office committed to restoring rights, to learning its lessons um, and providing compensation for people. Uh, we've seen quite pitiful payouts of mm. compensation, delays in doing that. I mean, if you just take an example of one person I met, she was earning £28,000 a year. It was her lifeblood and her family's lifeblood. She lost that right to work. She lost her benefits. She lost her house for seven years. So you're talking there just in terms of the immediate financial loss of a quarter of a million pounds that's been lost. And the payout offered to her was £12,500 because they're following a schedule that says you get 500 for emotional distress, you get 4000 for this. Um, and that's quite remarkable when you consider that they've spent, you know, the Home Office has spent 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in legal fees just defending themselves. Oh, millions, cases. for millions. sure. Yeah. Um, the government legal department is swallowing up there. And the second front in which it's really not moved on or, or evolved in the way that it should, and by it I mean the Home Office or the immigration system, is through what was called at the time the Lessons Learned Review. And an independent review was commissioned which recommended wide sweeping changes to the Home Office. At first, they refused to release it. They eventually did. Not surprisingly, the day after lockdown or a couple of days after lockdown was announced, so it got buried. And they haven't learned those lessons. And six months mm. later, a follow-up review said that the Home Office isn't making quick enough progress in things like rooting out racism, thinking about the implications of policy, thinking about the people that it works with as partners rather than opponents. There are millions of EU citizens who are on temporary settled status at the moment with a sort of cliff edge coming um, where they need to prove their eligibility for permanent settled status. They have nothing in writing. So we could potentially see a sort of windrush times a hundred with millions of people just losing the right to work. Absolutely. And that's something that, you know, when, when I was at JCWI and plenty of other organisations and campaigners warned about at the time that this digital first system with no automatic conferral of status was a recipe for disaster and that the ticking time bomb there, as you rightly point out, is people on pre-settled status who many of us forget to do things. I got a letter the other day saying, You've got to renew your TV license. Um, and I left it in a drawer for three weeks. I mean, you might well yeah, yeah. not realise that, you know, the 31st of August 2024 is the date that I've got to to put my phone on my, my ID and redo my status application. The consequences of that will be disastrous. And we're already seeing it with people who failed to get processed for the right status the first time around, wrapped up in red tape, waiting for appeals for decisions which take a year, year and a half, and in the meantime, lose the right to work, lose the right to rent, lose the right to access your bank account. Thank you, Satbir. We'll talk more later. This week on the show, with several weeks to go still in the Tory leadership race, we assess the current paralysis in government while the psychodrama unfolds. As candidates lurch ever to the right on all sorts of culture war issues, the country is left rudderless on energy and water shortages and the cost of living crisis. Plus, the FBI is packing America's biggest stockpile of fake tan and hairspray into evidence bags as Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort is raided. Why are the feds after him? And how will this affect the coming months and years in US politics? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, each summer, for what feels like 15 years, has been full of political drama. So we're asking, is this silly season well and truly a thing of the past? But first, here's Roz with a little reminder. Stuart Lee, Sophie Duca, something called The Twirly Woos, Ian Dunt. The Leicester Square <laughs> Theatre is a cathedral of comedy and Wednesday the 14th of September is your last chance to see Oh God, What Now there this year. Ian, Dorian, Alex and I will be bringing as much hollow laughter as we can to Liz Truss's coronation on this very special night. <laughs> tickets are available now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and there's a special four tickets for the price of three deal too. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. Or why not sign up to back us on Patreon and get a special supporter discount? Search Patreon Oh God What Now to find out how. We'll see you there. A leaked video from the Tory members' event in Tunbridge Wells, looking for all the world like the garden party scene from Get Out, 
saw Rishi Sunak pledge to move money away from deprived urban areas. And speaking of deprivation, new analysis has predicted that the average UK energy bill could rise to over £4,200 in January. Money-saving expert Martin Lewis points out that this would amount to 45% of the full state pension. But don't worry, Liz Truss has asked everyone not to be such a Debbie Downer. A recession can be avoided, apparently, by not having a recession. Why the hell didn't anyone think of that? Rose, the lauded economist for Brexit, Patrick Minford, is backing Liz Truss's why are you laughing? <laughs> He's backing Liz Truss's plans to cut income and business tax in a way that is both self-funding and doesn't affect inflation. Most economists think it'll mean the opposite. Um, is this a new cake and eat it? Yes, it is, I think, as far as I can see. Liz Truss thinks that cutting taxes will give people more money to spend. Now, there are two problems with that. Well, I won't say only two, but two of the main problems with that are that uh, the more money they have to spend, if they do spend it, that will contribute to inflation, which, as we know, is already very high. The other problem is that any money they do manage to recoup from uh, lower taxes will almost certainly go on rising energy bills. So it's not entirely clear to me how that will help to boost the rest of the economy. Most economists seem to think that it is just not possible to cut taxes at this scale as well without higher borrowing, mm. especially when inflation is eroding the spending power of public services. So that the small boosts that the NHS, for example, did get have been eroded away already by the fact that inflation is so high and they will have to pay their staff more and the things they buy will cost more. And of course, the main problem well, I say the main problem, that's just almost to underestimate the scale of the problem. Let's just say there's a nexus of issues. Yeah, when you cut income tax and national insurance, the rich benefit most because they pay the most income tax and national insurance, mm. whereas poorer people either don't pay it at all or pay relatively little of it. So they benefit least and they have less with which to try to pay off their energy bills. And of course, the people who get no help are the people on a, the lowest fixed fixed income, basically universal credit pensions, who will get diddly. Yeah. I mean, she, up till today, she had given she has given no firm indication that she would help cushion those people against energy bills. Although one of her supporters, James Cleverly, said she was, she is looking at targeted help this morning, which was a bit of a concession. And it's all the stranger because when you think of her hero, her heroine, Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher was very, very aware of the dangers of inflation. That was why she fought so hard to get it down. But my suspicion is that trust is desperate not to make another U-turn on this one. Because, of course, you may recall not so long ago, she had to make a U-turn on civil service wages in poorer areas after her campaign put out a suggestion that she that people living in poorer parts of Britain and working for the state should uh, earn less. She had to U-turn within hours on that one. If she has to U-turn on this as well, it does give Sunak quite a bit of ammunition. Sure. Um Challenging the woke brigade, as you mentioned, is Rishi Sunak. Um, so he's trying to lean back on economic competence because the culture war stuff didn't quite work out. He won't bring in tax rises until next April, by which time energy bills apparently will be on their way down again. Um, are his policies sound? <laughs> Well, that's what he thinks. It's not Quite entirely an clear. Quite isn't it? That <laughs> by <bills>. March, <laughs> the war will be over. 
Yep, that is something of an assumption, particularly if we don't manage to become more energy independent in the meantime, which we don't seem quite ready to do yet. Yes, his plan is basically to wait until inflation is under control before cutting taxes. Uh, And he says he'll try and do that in autumn 2023, uh, which again seems quite optimistic. And by 2030, he wants to to have cut the base rate of tax to 16%, which is quite a way down from the from the current 20. He also wants to cut fat on fuel, but frankly, that doesn't really touch the sides in terms of helping people. And there have been grumblings from the press who support trust today that inflation is going to drag more people into the highest tax bans. And that makes them all the more unhappy that he's not going to cut taxes yet because they say he'll get a higher tax stake anyway because more people Mm, will be be dragged into those. He's also made noises about cutting inheritance tax, uh, which again seems an interesting priority. But Gosh, all this and... And heaven too. It's quite rare to have such complete disagreement on an economic issue and both of them be completely wrong. (laughs) Um, Charles, in the latest polling from the Red Wars, 75% of voters think the government is not doing enough on cost of living issues versus only 15% who think it is. Will people forgive this level of indifference and navel-gazing, whoever takes over. I, I mean, it, it is quite amazing. I was I was in the shop this morning and the, the owner was telling me how his fuel bills, uh, so that's electricity and gas, have each tripled. And mm. obviously, because he's a business, there's no cap. And uh, I mean, what's that doing to inflation? He's well, got yes, to pass exactly. that that's, on somewhere, they've, right? they've got to either pass it on or go bust. Yeah. And uh, the news items that you hear, if you have the radio on, are always coming from all the small businesses. They're all they're all feeling the pinch already. They're very worried, and that feeds through into everything. And it's it just seems astonishing. It really does seem like there's a different planet on which all the all the Tory you know banjaxing is going on. And but people see it. They are all feeling it now. Yeah. I mean, Johnson is basically refusing to work his notice. Well, yeah, he's it been refusing to, to work for years, but yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, the government's approval rating is dropping in every area polled, including things like the pandemic and defence, in which they had been doing really well. So what's going on? Have the candidates been too cavalier about trashing their record to date? Or is there actually no way to have a leadership campaign that is quite respectful? Does it always descend to a sort of I think there's two things happening. So the first thing is that the whole Sunak versus Trust stuff has really taken over the media, has taken over the airways, has taken over the headlines. It's all the thing that gets pushed at. So everyone's forgotten about the pandemic, about vaccines, uh, and also about Ukraine and uh, defence and the fact that we were doing okay there. The fact that you don't have a figurehead saying, like Johnson saying, look how great we are, look at all the high-mile stuff that we're sending to Ukraine, means that... People forget it very quickly because these things do go out of the mind and they're much more focused on how the hell am I going to pay for, for this and for that? Mm. Uh, you know, schools coming up, they're going to got to buy school clothes for the children. Um, but at the same time, you're thinking that, OK, it's going to be a bit difficult. Do I have to cancel next year's holiday? Uh, will I ever be able to go on holiday again? Uh, people just have far more on their minds than being approving of the government. Mm. See your bathroom first, I mm. say. Satbir... Every single candidate, not just the final two, all of them either endorsed or doubled down on the Rwanda deportation plan. Are there dissenting voices in the Tory party which are keeping quiet 
or has it been just purged of any more centrist one nation elements, do we think? I think it's a really interesting moment in the kind of conversation within the Conservative or within the Parliamentary Party around this. And the Rwanda policy has become a sort of shibboleth for the party in a way that I did not expect that it would. Um, It was always an incredibly useful tool for the sort of further right recesses of the party to kind of burnish and show off their credentials. Um, But when you've got people who just weeks ago were viewed as slightly more sensible, like Tom Tugendhat, sort of saying, I would I would not just kind of continue the policy, but I would widen it. It's sort of, you know, at the moment, it's it's a kind of horrible policy that sits there written in regulations and orders from the Home Secretary and in the statute books. But it is still very much a hypothetical policy because nobody has been, thank God, nobody has actually been removed yet. But they're all talking about ramping it up to what? To, to thousands, to people from who've come through different methods. They want to widen it out, negotiate with other countries. I think that there are potentially people within the parliamentary party who are still quite exercised about it, who 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 are not comfortable with it. And what you need to do is look at the people who are saying nothing about the leadership mm. election at all. Who I'd point to people like Caroline Noakes, who yeah. interestingly was the immigration minister and um, was actually quite sensible um, in some ways and kind of knew that she had to toe the party Get line on some things. <laughs> but again, is one of the people, I mean, these are the people yeah. that were viewed as Roger the... Roger Gale the, is another exactly. notably quiet one recently. Um, maybe this ties to something else. Dominic Raab says he has big plans for the future of judicial review in this country, even though it was already tightened literally this year. Suella Braverman is still gunning for the ECHR. Why has there been such a focus on curtailing the way government decisions are challenged? Because that, it seems to me, that's what it's all about. Well, there's two things going on there. One is this permanently useful rhetorical frame of, you know, whether it's the cost of living or whether it's the availability of housing or spaces to register with your GP or your NHS dentist. All of this would be eminently possible if it wasn't for those horrible fifth columnists and their lefty lawyers stopping us from doing what's needed. And that does really well as a political message. But it is also kind of in a much more sinister way really about dismantling the ways in which government can be held to account. It's quite hard to think of governments or people with power who actually want to have that power constrained. Um, And you've got Mm. a party that's been in power for 12 years. Um, You've got them potentially looking at an electoral cliff edge in two years. And I, I really think that on some level, the candidates are looking at this and, and you know, the way in which they speak on camera, you do think, you know, you're going to have to run for election at some point. I, I really do think. <laughs> at some point, you're going to have to turn to from speak speaking to, to this tiny group of people to, to speaking to a bigger and group. I think so it's sort of worked for them in the past, is not it? It, 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 it has worked the for them in the past. But I do think there's a sort of accelerationism going on here where mm. they've had 12 years in power. You've got the authors of that book, Britannia Unchained, who are thinking, my God, we had a long shopping list of things to, to legislate and deregulate. We need to get as much stuff done in the next two years as possible. Um, We need to make as much of this change irreversible. And one of the ways to do that is ram it through Parliament as quickly as possible, reduce the power of the courts to challenge the outcomes of those policies and reduce the power of anybody to hold them to account or to change those things afterwards. It's quite dark what they're doing. Meanwhile, Satbir, Johnson's allies are attacking the Standards and Privileges Committee over its investigation into whether he misled Parliament. Um, which is majority conservative, 
Is that a Johnson cult thing or is that part of that wider attack on accountability? Is that what do you think? What What's the feeling in your waters? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, particularly when you think of Nadine Dorries, that there's definitely a cult vibe. <laughs> Don't there. make me think of Nadine I'd Dorries. like not to. <laughs> <laughs> this is a safe space. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, but it, it definitely also forms part of that wider assault on um, accountability. I mean, in the same way as we're seeing across the pond with kind of historical revisionism about Donald Trump, I think that's what's already begun here, that, mm. that Boris was perhaps our great hero who was permanently sabotaged by the enemies inside the tent. And I think we're beginning to see the seeding of this alternative story of Boris the Great. That's interesting to to compare to compare it with Trump. Like there was a knockback of that kind of populist, yeah. And now they're beginning to rebuild a little bit the statues. Yes, and 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 that's exactly what you're seeing there with, you know, stories coming out that Boris would have done the following, but he was thwarted by his horrible cabinet. Boris would have stayed on and no one would have had inflation. They would have paid you to have electricity if if only <laughs> if only for you know different people being in parliament. It's quite remarkable. Charles, what has been notably absent from the leadership debate, in my view, are all the future gazing if issues, which this Conservative Party has been telling us for years are the core to global Britain. So there's been very little on the green economy other than to attack it, very little on tech investment, nothing on productivity, nothing on automation, AI, life sciences, research. What we see instead is a rerun of different models of austerity. Is there a danger that Britain's future will be swallowed up by this terrible present? Yeah, I mean, I think only Rishi Sunak has paid lip service to AI machine learning as a as a possible thing that could be useful. I mean, and, but it's all... But he doesn't know how to tap a fucking debit card. Well, yes. <laughs> I know this amazing you technology. Do you know what I mean? He's person for technology. Yeah, I know. It's, it's terrible, isn't it? And, and uh, Liz Truss saying, no, no, no solar farms. And both of them saying, no, onshore wind. Where onshore wind has a 78% popularity and the, uh, you know, the Department of Business actually shows that in the survey on its website. Uh, it's it's sort of terrifying how they can want to have energy independence and yet they can't see the the shortcut to it, which is to have you know more solar panels, more wind power, um, less reliance on gas turbines, more nuclear power. All these all these comparatively simple things. And yes, as you say, life sciences. You know, we would, we did really well on the vaccines, as it happens. Um, you know, we do really well on machine learning. DeepMind, which is a British company, has come up with a fantastic database which allows researchers to predict the shape of proteins, which sounds a bit mm. trivial and silly, but actually is going to be very important for development of drugs, understanding of diseases in the future. Training is the big fault and Productivity is the thing they don't talk about. Productivity growth has been zero in effect for years. Mm. We lag behind all the other countries because our training is so bad, so bad. There's there's huge potential there, and yet they just can't bring themselves to enunciate it, partly because they've been in charge for 12 years. It's all there on their watch. It's all happened. Now let's take a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This week, listener Callum Baird 
writes, In a few weeks, my wife will, if all goes well, give birth to our first child. There is definitely a part of me that almost feels guilty for bringing them into a world as mad and chaotic as this. Can the panel assuage these anxieties and suggest what they think my daughter has to look forward to in her lifetime? Shall we start with you, Roz? Yeah. You have children. Surely you must rehearse this a little yes. bit. My my 13-year-old daughter often does say to me, what the hell have you guys done to the, <laughs> to the world and what have I got to look forward to? And so I have actually given this some thought and I usually give her an answer along the lines of, well... First of all, you're much less likely to die of an infectious, uh, infectious disease than you ever have been before, um, pending future pandemics, obviously. But back in 1850, 44% of people in, in England and Wales died from an infectious disease. And that has massively, massively fallen thanks to vaccinations and antibiotics and hygiene. Mm. But aside from that, even if you, if, you, if you take that and say, well, that's a banked good... As a woman, her choices are going to be greater than at any time for women in human history. She can control her fertility. She can do pretty much any job a man can do. She's an equal member of society. That has not been true until very recently in human history. And I hope it's unlikely to change much in the next couple of decades. So that's something to be positive about. As long as mm. she doesn't move to America. Yeah, but well, I'm assuming she's, she's British. Uh, I'd love to know what you tell your son, but let's, <laughs> let's not go into that. How about you, Charles? Uh, okay. Assuage calories. Yes, OK, so, so the, more, the more general one, I guess. Um, there will be, if she's living in, an air, in a city, less air pollution because there will be more electric vehicles, fewer diesel and petrol vehicles. Those are all going to be phased out. There will be cheaper electricity, actually, over time because we'll put more and more solar panels on every available surface in order to harness all the power. Um, there will be, if you get uh, diseases, there will be gene-targeted uh, drugs which will be able, which will be tailored specifically to the disease using those uh, proteins, that sort of protein discovery system. Um, and more generally, uh, we're starting to understand how to control social networks and get them in line so that you don't get uh, mindless polarisation. So mm. uh, I think those are benefits. OK, too. well, so far I'm getting um, you'll be able to be alive for longer in this existential hell. <laughs> um, Satbeer. This this question really struck me Um my son, I have one child, was born the day that lockdown lifted last year. And so I spent a long time during that nine months with my partner through three successive variations of lockdown thinking, what the hell have we done? What are we bringing our child into? And I'd echo medical advances and all the rest of it. But I think that, that there's also... For, for children born at this time, there's more opportunities than there have ever been to be involved in creative, powerful ways to shape the society around you. Activism is all around us. Through whether it's social media or just through tighter community networks, there are pockets of exciting resistance, activism, creation everywhere. And I think of my son, if that's what he wants to be, being part of that. And and more than that, I think for all of us, if you're a parent or if you're about to be a parent, think about what you're going to fight for for your child to enjoy in 10 mm. years or 20 years' time. Don't necessarily 
expect or demand that the world is a better place for them, be part of it. Think about what you're doing and how you're fighting for that better world for your child. There you go, Callum. It's all up to you. The FBI has raided Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. No, sorry, let's use the proper terminology. Executed a legal search warrant on his ass. Amid allegations that he took classified documents from the White House, he took it extremely well, releasing a statement that reads as follows. The political persecution of President Donald J. Trump, I love that he talks about himself in the third person, has been going on for years with the now fully debunked Russia, Russia, Russia scam, impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two, and so much more, it just never ends Two exclamation points. And yes, he really did write Russia three times. Then on Wednesday, he was subpoenaed by New York investigators looking into financial irregularities of the Trump organization and pleaded the fifth. The first time he shuts up (laughs) is when he's asked (laughs) to say something. Ros, what grounds do we think the feds have for raiding Mar-a-Lago? Are they likely to find anything other than Big Mac wrappers in his cabinets? We don't know exactly the answer to this question, but the best bet at the moment seems to be that they were looking for papers he may have removed illegally from the White House, because when you finish your presidential term, you're supposed to hand over all the uh, all the documents that have been produced during your presidency. But he took some with him. They might shed light on, who knows, the storming of the Capitol, for example, or some of the other illegal activity that was going on during his presidency. So that is the best bet. I mean, his lawyer his lawyer said if they needed documents, they could have asked, which <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a defense that, you know, would that we could all use. Yes, one of his proxies said it's not like he's going to flush them down the loo. On the very day the story broke of him trying to flush documents down the loo. There's, there's just so many cell phones from his allies. Um, Johnson is referred to here as the greased piglet. Trump has been escaping litigation in similar ways in the US for a very long time. Are we in a hiding to nothing, hoping that the law will catch up with him rather than just mobilise his base against the, the deep state? I mean, this, after all, confirms everything they think anyway. I hope we're not, because it's a bit of a council of despair, to be quite honest, to assume that there's no point in enforcing the law against Trump because he'll only go on to weaponize it. I mean, that, if we were to accept that, that would show how far his control over the US state apparatus has extended and that he's terrified institutions into submission. And we shouldn't hope for that. I mean, would we would we hope that Parliament had been so ground down that it would abandon the inquiry into Johnson and Partygate? We wouldn't hope that. Let's point out that the Grease Piglet has now been removed. Um, and <laughs> while true. while things are looking bleak at the moment, I do believe that was the first step in, you know, clearing out the Algian stables, which number 10 had turned into and the job is very very far from done but at least one of the worst worst beasts has been removed from the area Mm, one of his proxies tweeted if he if this can happen to a former president it could happen to everyone (laughs) and friend of the podcast brian class quote tweeted saying thank you for describing the rule of law (laughs) (laughs) satbir um 
Last week, Kansas voted to continue protecting abortion in the state's constitution. It's an unexpected victory in a very red state. Is there a sense that the overturning of Roe v. Wade was an overreach that might backfire by mobilizing the Democratic base this time? I think it's possible. And and if you look at the breakdown of that vote, what was interesting was there were a large number of moderate Republicans that voted to keep uh, protection for mm-hmm. those rights on the statute books in the state constitution. I think there's a real problem or a real risk that the Democrats take that sort of argument for granted and go into the election assuming that the base will be mobilized. Because what's often forgotten is that Roe v. Wade has been on the ticket for the Democratic Party in pretty much every election for the last 20 or so years. Mm. They have gone to voters at midterms and presidential and state level elections saying, we are the party that will protect Roe v. Wade, vote for the other guys and it will go. What happened this year was the Democrats controlled both chambers of Congress and the White House. And nonetheless, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, I mean, the, it's a judicial it's, it's decision. It's fair technically it's, to it's, say it's that, but Supreme it was Court actually... Decision. It was yeah. a Supreme Court decision, but something that the Republicans are, are sort of very good at and they've demonstrated over the last three or four decades is that that type of battleground is where they are at their best and mm. their most effective. Mm. The, the Republicans over two generations have not simply focused on Washington they have created a very durable talent pipeline, which is you start at the level of the state legislature, you get your candidates into the state legislature, you control the state machinery. So it'll be quite hard for Democrats to oppose changes to the state constitution in Kansas, for example. Um, And from there, you work your way through the pipeline, get those people into Congress. So the infrastructure for the Democrats to pull off that kind of victory in other states isn't there right now. But I hope that they take the midterms as a chance to build it because it takes time and they need to invest now. Otherwise, who knows what else? Who, who no, knows you're what other right, rights you're will right. disappear over time? It's not something I've thought about deeply, but I think you're right that the, they're, they're not great at working from the grassroots up sometimes. They, they focus top down. Um, elsewhere, the, the U.S. Senate has passed a swathe of legislation addressing the climate, health care, taxes, after overcoming objections from more right-wing Democrats, Cinema uh, and uh, Manchin. Do tiny majorities deliver better law, do you think, by preventing an executive from just pile-driving legislation on principle, or worse law rendered useless by the level of compromise that goes on? It, in a way, it depends on where you stand on the particular piece of legislation that's going through <laughs> Parliament or, or through the Senate or through Congress. OK, let's um, say you don't like this piece of legislation. Is it made better by the small majority and the need for compromise? I think it can be. I think this particular bit of legislation is, you know, it's, it's very much a, uh, what in American politics they'd call a camel or a donkey. It's a, it's mm. a horse made by committee. Um, it doesn't look even remotely like what was considered. I mean, we can accept the fact that the $3.5 trillion kind of price tag at the beginning was was very much a kind of attempt to, to set the price very high so that you could negotiate somewhere yeah. in the middle. Um, but what we've got here is, is an example of the Democrats again, and I, I sort of hate to be critical in a way because, of course, I want them to, to hold on to, to Congress and to hold on to the White House. Um, but the Democrats not being very good at something that the Republicans are incredibly good at, which is discipline. Um, you've got moderate Republicans 
who will fall into line with the party in order to ensure that its goals are achieved. They will they will get their comeuppance later. They'll get their payback later on something. They'll mm, get promoted mm. to candidacy for governor, whatever it is. Right, right. Um, and the Democrats, time and time again, we saw it in 2008 to 10 with healthcare. We've seen it over the last 18 months with this. It's a good bit of legislation in that it goes further than anything has ever gone. 40% emission cuts by 2030, massive amounts of money for electric vehicles and for wind. But underneath there, what you've got is the revealing of this very, very, very fragile coalition that the Democratic Party is right now. And you think, my God, they've got to hold on to the Senate which is an uphill task. They've got to hold on to the House and then somehow they've got to hold on to the White House and you can't really see how they pull that off without a huge amount of effort. Mm. Though, of course, that that doesn't quite get into the fact of how distorted the American electoral system is when it comes to the Senate and, to some extent, the White House because of uh, the way that the Senate gives two seats to every state uh, rather than doing it by population as the, uh, as the House yeah. of Representatives so in, does. So in Senator Sinema's case, you have the state of Arizona holding mm. the entire country and, because we're talking about the climate, the entire planet to ransom yeah. um, over the carried interest loophole. Meanwhile, in related matters, far-right conspiracist Alex Jones, a big player in the January 6th uh, insurrection, is due to pay at least $4 million in damages and then another 45 impunitive to the parents of children who died in the Sandy Hook school shooting. The trial also saw his lawyers accidentally send months of his texts to the parents' lawyers and... Uh, many agencies are interested in those. Do you think it's the last we'll see of him? Well, no, obviously, because there are more trials in the same vein coming up from other parents. It's interesting. I have to declare, I did once appear on Alex Jones's podcast, not in the studio. It was a long time ago. Uh, my first book was called Digital Wars, and I think he or his researchers were fascinated by it, even though it was about nothing to do with right, right, right. all the far-right conspiracy stuff. Um, but he struck me as a very weird guy doing it on the podcast with him. You know, he sort of got this growly voice, and he was spinning off into conspiracies, and it was a very... Very weird experience being trying to be the sort of voice of reason against this voice of unreason. Um, but, I mean, he's he's really got that furrow well and truly ploughed now. And he's not going to stop doing that because he can just carry on and move on move on to other things. It's enormously profitable for him. And there's no reason he should, he should stop, even with all those fines, because he makes so much money. During the January 6th storming of the Capitol, social media played a big part in ratcheting up the tension we know now. Have lessons been learned by those platforms or do they sort of just ban oh, a, Trump and, and gone job done? Yeah, it's a very much a sort of lessons were learned, mistakes were made sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, for Facebook, they did do an internal report which uh, found that, yes, they basically let it cook for too long. After November 2020, when all of, or even slightly before, when Republicans and Trumpists were going wild on Facebook saying the election was being stolen, was going to be stolen. Uh, they dithered over whether this was just acceptable free speech and these people were a bit upset and should we just let them be upset about it? And hundreds of thousands of people joined these groups, which Facebook's algorithm encourages them, encourages them to join. So the groups get bigger and angrier because that's what you get when you get a group of people together online. 
And eventually it spilled over into the organisation of the January 6th insurrection. So have they learned their lesson? It's not really clear. Facebook, for example, has uh, just been warned by the Kenyan government that it will be thrown out of Kenya or blocked in Kenya uh, because it allowed all sorts of uh, election adverts which were effectively uh, ethnically racist, which were which were you know, against one party or the other. Facebook hasn't really learned any of these lessons at all, one feels. Was it like a graphic of Kenya and Turkey with a big red arrow <laughs> coming over I don't and know saying... The, I don't know who the Kenyan equivalent of Nigel Farage <laughs> is, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is the equivalent of that. It, it's, you know, just that sort of thing. Let's finish with two interesting side notes. Um, Satpeer, The Atlantic, has published a report into the policy of separating families at the U.S. border, including a quote from former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, stating the government's aim was to take away children. Do these policies remain, though? Have they, I mean, I really don't know. Have these things been rescinded? Are they inactive but still on the books? What's going on? So the policy that led to Border Patrol guards ripping children out of their mother's hands, and that was what sparked huge global outcry in 2018, was rescinded under Trump. The practice continued using various other provisions in law which allowed you to detain adult migrants... Um, or seekers of asylum, as many of them are, coming from places like Honduras, um, if you had reason to suspect that they were involved in criminal activity, terrorism, gangs, and the rest of it. Um, so that practice effectively continued, whereby you detained the adult, and the children were effectively handed over to the Department for Health and Human Services um, and put into those god-awful cages that we saw, those horrible conditions left there without food or water sometimes, detained for well over the legal limit of 20 days. Um, that practice drew down towards the end of the Trump administration, although there were still thousands of children who were not reunited with their families. One of the first things that President Biden did was create an interagency task force. Because what Trump did, and this is a, it's not talked about enough how kind of really spiteful this was, that mm -hmm. a, a, a district judge in California had said, you have to reunite those children with their families. And they said, fine, we're not challenging this any further. And he said, fine, they can reunite with their families, but the federal government's not putting any money behind it. And so it was left to local organizations and volunteers to go out and match children with their families. And to date, we still have hundreds, potentially thousands of kids who aren't. So the Biden administration's not doing that. They're not physically ripping children out of their parents' arms. But what they are doing is maintaining something called the Remain in Mexico policy. So anybody trying to cross the border, even those with valid asylum claims, which is the vast majority of people coming up through Central America because they're not Mexicans. They're coming from places like mm. Honduras, places riven by gang violence. And the government has yielded on unaccompanied minors being granted entry into the United States. And that spreads through a place where you've got hundreds of thousands of people and they're then making the decision that my child should not grow up in a tent, my child should not watch me get murdered oh, God, and they're putting three-year-olds and two-year-olds in other older children's arms and sending them across the border. Um, so, it's, so it's happening by default. Mm. Charles, how is Trump's social media network Truth Social doing? Do we know? Do we, have we do, we do. It's doing encouragingly badly. Oh. So uh, Truth Social is a sort of clone of Twitter. It, it looks a bit like Twitter, except it's actually a clone of an open source system called Mastodon. Uh, and um, it has about half a million 
daily active users out of 1.2 million signups. Um, and the profile of those who use it is they're generally Reddit users, esports fans, millennials, college graduates. So weirdly, they're male college educated millennials, um, but really not a large number of them when you consider that uh, when Trump was on Twitter, he had bazillions of followers. Mm. Uh, bonus points to anyone who can guess what the equivalent of a retweet is on there. Charles, you are uh, excluded. I was going to say from, it's a post-truth. Oh, from the con <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? No idea. What's a retweet? Re-Trump? <laughs> a retruth? It is a retruth. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. They weren't even imaginative. It's worse than they I thought. They weren't even creative about it. <laughs> um, I think it should be a re-Trump, though. Mm, um, that would make more sense. With all the colloquial extensions that has. Yes, with a little, with a little icon <laughs> of an elephant's trunk. <laughs> Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Roz, can I start with you? Well, I think it is a massive story that the biggest long-distance train operator in this country has slashed its services. And I think in any other in any other universe than the insane one we are currently living in, it would be a front-page story, and yet it isn't. I mean, basically, Avanti West Coast have cut their services to places like Manchester and uh, Scotland and northern cities by two-thirds, and they have stopped selling tickets um, because they can't guarantee that the trains that people want to buy tickets for will actually run because they're in the process of putting together a timetable that they might actually be able to follow. They have been they have tried to do this before this summer and they have already instituted a couple of emergency timetables that they cannot keep to. And now they're trying to do it again. Now, it seems that this is because they don't have enough drivers and that is because more drivers, for whatever reason, are refusing to work overtime and that's their right. They don't have to work overtime, but Avanti West Coast says that is unofficial strike action, which is something that is hotly disputed, obviously, well, obviously. by the train driver unions. But it's clear that it's not just Avanti that is seeing this because as anyone who has turned up at, at a station in the last few weeks and has tried to take a train will tell you, sometimes you just have to go home again because there are no flipping trains going where you want to go and you if you wait two hours you know perfectly well you will have to stand the whole way and it will be a journey from hell uh charles what's yours oh okay mine is mine is similarly big and yet and yet uh, under the it's beautifully under the radar uh the gdpr which everyone knows and loves um that euro regulation may mean that Facebook has to split its US operations from its European operations. The Irish Data Protection Registrar does not like the way that Facebook transfers data between Europe and the United States because the United States does not protect data in the same way that Europe does under the GDPR. Mm. The Irish Data Protection Registrar has put out a judgment saying, OK, Facebook, we don't like this. You should stop it. Um, there the deadline for comments has now passed. Other countries in Europe think the uh, registrar's ideas are fine. And now it's up to Facebook to decide what it does. And his options are find some method of transferring data 
which the European governments and the US government agree with, that doesn't seem to be happening, or split off its functions in a way which doesn't transfer data between the two, which would effectively mean that you had two Facebooks. And whether they could talk to each other is rather unclear. Um, quite how they do it would be uh, quite interesting, but it might mean that you know people would be cut off from their Mar American relatives and vice versa. Fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> Sad beer, what's yours? Um, so mine picks up on cost of living and the base rate rise last week. So the Bank of England raised the base rate by 50 basis points. Um, and something that we're not hearing about enough but is probably bubbling out there is the question of unsustainable debt at the household level. Um, work that we did over the last few weeks uncovered that three and a half million people were behind and in arrears on their fuel bills before price rises went up. So you've now entered into a situation where you've got a further price increase on the horizon, people are falling behind, and the base rate for debt is, is going up at the same time. Um, and we're hearing stories about people struggling to choose between fuel and food. I'm increasingly worried about people struggling with unsustainable debts and not sufficient regulation or control of debt collection, the kind of harassment that we can expect people to start receiving. People may already be undergoing that. And I, I, do, I do think it's an area that's almost certainly bubbling out there and we're just not hearing enough about it. Mm. And as a result, it's very difficult to start taking concerted action against it. I can tell you from the Greek experience, 10 years ago now, that there is a tipping point where basically so many people cannot afford to pay utility bills um, that the system for sort of prosecuting and collecting and all of that also grinds to a halt mm. because just the numbers being funneled into it are so huge that the recovery business basically can't cope with the number of people going in it. And that's what happened in Greece, effectively. So what was so many people didn't... Well, it, in the end, there was a sort of amnesty. Um, the, there's no chance of collecting this money from, you know, because we've had over a decade of austerity and there is only so much fat to a household's economics at some point you hit bone and then it doesn't matter who's demanding what if you don't have it you don't have it it worries me enormously this not just because of the people going into debt and what that means but what it will do for social solidarity when some people do not pay because they cannot pay and other people push themselves to the absolute limit and get into debt as you say and uh, do manage to pay their bills but suffer immensely because of it and what that will do to the fabric of society in this country is quite terrifying. And not to add to the doom, but my under the radar, just before we started recording, and that's why I have such little information on it, there was another report of a migrant boat um, going over uh, near Karpathos in Greece. Um, and we will just keep seeing this happening. That story is not what's going under the radar. What is completely under the radar is the adult debate that some, at some point we will need to have as Western democracies that, that acknowledges the fact that we cannot make massive swathes of, of the world uninhabitable, mm. either by climate change or war, and then expect that a number of people trying to survive or save their children 
will respect some notional, fictional, imaginary line that someone has put between them and food and water. And the numbers will get to a point where, you know, no dam will be able to contain it. So in my view, we need to have a conversation about how to stop the leak, how to fix the things that are making those places uninhabitable and uninhabitable and making people flee or suffer the consequences in the very near future. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Roz. Thank you. To Charles. Pleasure. And Satbir. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget our survey. The link is in the show notes. And our final live Leicester Square Theatre show of 2022 on Wednesday, 14th of September. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. Stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusive for backers on Patreon. That's after a theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to some of the backers from our huge backlog of loyal and brilliant and patient supporters. Big thanks from me to Anna, Caroline Gratty, Anthony Martin, Megan Roberts, Nicola Welch, Sandra Elsley, Trey, Will Walsh, Robert Pugh and Sarah Leach. And Polia Rappi from me to Anna Wilson, Chris R. Evans, Siobhan Woodhouse, Simon, Sally Kemble-Smith, Garrett Brown, Helen Green, Jason Cumming and Arthur Pint. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre with Roz Taylor. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The producers are Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronevich and Alex Reese. Assistant producers, Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producers, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive for Patreon backers. The summer parliamentary recess used to be home to all manner of Westminster frippery. But in the last 15 years, we've jumped from coalition to riots, to fuel protests, to the Scottish referendum, to Brexit and beyond. The silly season feels like a distant dream. So this week we're asking, when was the last one? Um, Why has silly season disappeared? Very easy. It's the internet. I blame (laughs) the internet. internet. I blame the internet and its parents. So, (laughs) I mean, it's the internet plus smartphones plus uh, social networks. Uh, The rise of things like WhatsApp means that MPs in particular can be never away from their phones, always uh, contactable. And uh, the internet also means that news is brought to you from anywhere. Uh, You could be Dominic Raab sunning yourself on a beautiful... That was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to Backers on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning, exclusive to Backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.